Hello, and welcome to the Decisions That Matter podcast. Our guest today is Stacy Gregg, who joins us from the University of South Carolina in Columbia. Stacy brings a tremendous amount of experience to the podcast today with over two decades of experience in both K-12 and higher education. You may know Stacy from around the procurement community as she's given some wonderful speeches at NIGP and similar venues. It really is our honor to have her on the podcast today. She tells some really interesting stories and shares great advice for anybody in the procurement field. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Procurated, and I'll also include Stacy's information in the show notes below so you can find her on LinkedIn and see some of the other work that Stacy has done. This is a really great episode. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Decisions That Matter podcast, where we meet with leaders from across the procurement community to discuss innovative and strategic ideas. Because when it comes to procurement, every decision matters. All right, welcome to the Decisions That Matter podcast. Today we are joined by Stacy Gregg from the University of South Carolina. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Stacy. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. Can we uh, kick it off today by you telling us a little bit about your past experience, how you got into the procurement field, and what that journey has been like to get you to where you're at today? God, it's been so long. I started, when I started in procurement, I was waiting tables, and I decided that I needed something else to do. And so I went to a temp agency, and they gave, they gave me a position in a procurement office, and um, I eventually got hired there as a data entry clerk. And the rest is history. I've worked at that school district for a long time. From that time, I've just learned a lot and and grown in the profession. We've also seen the profession grow a lot. When I first started, it was very clerical. Now it's very strategic. And so I've had the opportunity to grow up with procurement, I would say. It turns out that there's a lot more, I would say, interesting problems or, or unique challenges that end up turning into a fulfilling career than people would maybe think about it just looking at a job description or something like that. Right. And most of us that have been in it for 20 or more years tell the same story. I just happened by it and I grew to love it. And so I'm still here. But now there is more conversations, I'll say, about how do we engage younger people into learning more about the field of public procurement so that they can make intentional decisions about becoming procurement officers. Before, when I first started, we didn't have any schools or there were no pro about supply chain, procurement. Now you're seeing them start to become, become more prevalent in, um, at the university level. And we see a lot more engagement from our professional organizations such as NIGP and NASPO in having conversations and helping universities build so that we can start recruiting. And at the chapter level, a lot of times we're in high schools and local colleges as well, talking to young people about a great profession. Yeah, and I, I think especially what you said before about that transition kind of from procurement being more clerical to being much more strategic and uh, much more like relationship-based and you guys really are solving such big challenges. I would love to hear a little bit more about that. So what do you think made that change happen or kind of looking back in your career, how do you think that shift kind of started to take place? I would guess that the change came from national downward, that people in places such as NIGP, NASPO, um, and our um, university 
organizations as well started having conversations about where we can go with this and what we can do because the the possibilities are infinite and so i guess the conversations would be that we would have every single day really how do we bring value to our entities and certainly that's more than you got to do more than cut po's right and as we saw budgets decline um how do we save because that's a definite value, but also within the confines of our um, state statutes, how do we become creative and still get our end users the items that they need in order to be successful in their jobs? And so we've seen a lot of conversations around that. And so, and it, it, of course, again, it becomes strategic. We have to, in order to answer those questions, we have to be strategic. And so we still have the conversations today. I love that. Um, great answer. You specifically or the industry in general, we're faced with a series of challenges and then it's how do we step up and rise to the challenge and come up with creative solutions um, to, to break past them which I think is a really great segue into hopefully what we're gonna be able to talk about today is this kind of metaphor that I learned first from you, Stacey, at NIGP, <laughs> um, hurdles versus roadblocks. And as procurement, as a procurement official, how do we take something that, instead of saying no and creating a roadblock, how do we turn it into a hurdle? So I'd love to first ask, if you could just tell us a little bit about you know, this approach to challenges, what, what do you mean by hurdle versus roadblock? Um, and what, what does that difference mean to you? So, you know, it's funny. Um, I actually was scheduled to record that session and I did not have a topic. So I went on Facebook. I do have a, um, a blog page on Facebook. And so when I go out and teach and speak, I get people to follow me and I put articles out there purchasing articles that we most people are ordinarily wouldn't see. And so I put a question out there like, y'all, you have to help me. I don't have a topic. And so Andrea Foran, I have to give her all the credit in Arkansas. She wrote, what if you did something called hurdles to heroes? And so I thought, well, that's pretty ingenious. So I started thinking about that and what that meant for us. And so in reality, a lot of times our end users see us as roadblocks because we're oftentimes standing between um, them and what they need or what they want, right? They're not seeing all of the statutes behind us, the policies, the ethics concerns that we have. All they know is I want my pencils and why haven't you bought them yet? And so as I thought it through and I thought about what we do every single day, it was, okay, so we need, we're always going to have hurdles. And if you'll remember in this session, I talked about the difference between a hurdle and a roadblock. A roadblock is going to stop you dead in your tracks. And that's not the reputation that we want to have. And we don't want to be in the, pro I mean, in the habit of being roadblocks. But hurdles, whereas they're impediments, they're also strengthening and conditioning. And they're temporary. Hurdles are meant for people to get over and around. And so I did make the analogy about track stars or track runners who encounter hurdles. The more they get, the more they come into contact with them, the easier it is for, the, to get, for them to get over them. So then the question is, how do we turn roadblocks into hurdles? And then how do we help our end users to be strengthened and conditioned enough to get over those hurdles, which will eventually help us to become heroes? I was listening to it thinking, and I'm sure there's some people on that track team 
the hurdles is their favorite thing to do. Right. Like they, they embrace it and they, they love it. Do you feel like there's being in a public university is that some of those things like the statutes and rules and regulations and things, is it multiplied because you have stuff within the school and then also, like, I'm sure the state has some rules and things like that on how to use the money, or is it does it does it add a complication or, or not being um, getting money for both of those areas? My experience is that education comes with its own set of challenges. Period. When I was in K twelve, a lot of the challenges that we had in K twelve, I'm finding here at the university level. When I was working for state government, I actually worked for the state um, procurement office, which allowed us to do procurements for everybody that was under state appropriations over a certain dollar level. So in South Carolina, they might have this agency, whether it be something like a Department of Social Services, they might have a $50,000 threshold. And after that, they have to send it to our office. And that's when we got involved. USC is quite a bit higher with their threshold. And so we get to buy a lot more than a lot of the other educational institutions. But I'll say that a lot of times faculty, there's such a divide between us and faculty that there is like a communication problem and they'll never get to see why we do what we do. They just know that their, their goods and services are not showing up in the time that they want it to show up. Um, and that's in the K-12 as well as in the, um, ed, in the higher ed. Um, and if you think about it, they have the person in their office, that's who purchasing is to them. And so when they say, well, I have to send it to the procurement office, then that's probably someone who is quite removed, almost fictional. Mm-hmm. To know that when I send my requisitions up there, they get lost and it takes months for me to get the stuff I want. It may seem like just red tape, bureaucracy, red tape. And so I think that's where we have the responsibility to show our value. One thing that I always do behind my um, procurements is if I save the entity money, I send them a note back saying, thank you for participating in the process. Um, Guess what? Just because you came through the procurement office, you still now have $50,000 that we negotiated the balance down that you could use for something else. Or if the process normally takes 90 days and we get it out in 30, I say, look, we thought it was going to take 90 days and it, it took 30 just so that I can communicate the value that our office has for the university. I love that. What a great, not even a small thing. I mean, it's a big thing. That's a big win, but just keeping in mind that that's something you can do just to show your value and show like, thanks for coming through us. You know, this, thanks for letting us do our job and letting us serve you. That's such a great tip to improve communication and relationships in general. Well, and we talked about trust, remember, in that session, and I think it also um, builds trust among the teams that are working together to get them the supplies that they need when they need it. And sometimes it takes a certain level of trust to for an end user to remove their hands from a procurement and feel safe that the procurement team is going to get them what they need. Because at the end of the day, when you're working at, in K-12 or at the university level, it's really not the faculty that's affected. It's the students whose parents have entrusted the institution to do the right thing that are, in fact, impacted. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to hear, kind of going back to this original analogy of kind of hurdles versus roadblocks, 
are there have there been any times in your career where you feel like you've been faced with a challenge and the steps that you took to make sure that you were able to like work directly with your colleagues and the people in the entities to, to turn that challenge into a hurdle yes um and you know there's there's all different types of tools that you can use i think in order to make that happen something one of my most favorite procurements um in my entire career happened a few years ago maybe about four years ago where in south carolina we had what we call a thousand year flood it just rained and rained and rained and didn't stop and then um basically people lost homes because of it the roads were washed away because of it. I remember I talked about it in the session about how they put roadblocks up and people drove into holes. Um, and so what we ended up doing, I was doing with the Department of Commerce was they gotten something called a community block development grant from HUD, which allowed us to replace people's homes. It was a big deal. I think we may have had $90 million to spend on that project. And the impact that we had as a team was today, if you were living in a home that was filled with mold and mildew because of that flood, tomorrow um, we could either tear the home down or if you were living in a mobile home, pull it off your lot and replace it with a new home. And so that's really how important that was. Going into the process, there were some things that made me uncomfortable about the direction that we were heading. But at the end of the day, I decided that that one wasn't my, that one wasn't my car to drive. It was just, it would be more appropriate for me to oversee it and offer some guidance because they spent a lot of time planning it. And ours was actually the very first one to get off the ground successfully and, and to have the successes that we had. Um, a lot of programs before ours just didn't do as well. And I think it was largely because of the planning that went on with all of the, the specialists and, and the professionals that were on our team, um, architects, planners, all kinds of stuff, financial procurement. And I, I think the decision there was, Stacy, if you impose yourself as the staunch procurement person, these people are not going to live get in their homes. And so it was something that I started in August, I think, July or August. And by Christmas, we had our very first homeowner living in his new home. Um, but I think that that's an instance that we could have really taken some hits on had I insisted that we do everything the way that I wanted to do it um, or I felt comfortable doing it when really at the end of the day, as long as it was good statutorily, that's really all we needed to rely on. And there was some other things, you know, there was um, an instance where I felt like something that might be small to most people, um, they we had we did an rfp for it and so we just wanted one company to come in and do everything from beginning to end it was full spectrum they were going to do the intake they were going to do the advertisements all the way down to they're going to see to it that each home is built and then they're going to turn around and hire an auditor to make sure the program went the way that it was supposed to go and when we were evaluating the um, proposals, I asked for the evaluation team. And what I noticed was that there were a lot of subordinate relationships there. Like this person who was a manager was sitting on the same evaluation panel as his charges. And it's just not something that you would want to do because he can basically tell people what, how to vote. 
or how to score. So what I did was ask one of the architects in our office if he would be willing to sit in, or one of the engineers in our office, if he would be willing to sit in on the evaluation panel. So then when all the scores came back, they looked like how he scored it. So I knew that we had a good product and that it wasn't that anybody was influenced by it. Um, and it actually helped us because it came up again later and I was able to say, mm -mm, we did it all in the right way. It was all in the right order. But again, had I said, no, you can't do it that way. I don't know that we would have gotten the same product. I think that's such a great example of flexibility <laughs> on your part. So it's like you could have <laughs> just like shut it down, but instead of, you know, keeping the end goal and, you know, we have the ability to really impact people's lives quickly but kind of being a little flexible and bringing someone else in and saying like, I just want to put a safety net in place to make sure that everything is still going to be exactly what it's supposed to be and we can continue moving forward. Right? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's exactly okay. what happened. And you know, there was another one that I did that wasn't, that one was very high profile. That wasn't quite as profiled, but it impacted a lot of people in the state, state employees in particular. And as you have to, as procurement people, we have to trust our gut. And as I was watching the process unfold and having witnessed some of my um, colleagues work with the same group of people, it became very apparent that agency head was driving the show as far as um, how they were scoring. And he imposed himself into the process. Everyone was in the room. Very, his, his personality was very um, controlling and, and, and people would not speak until he kind of gave them permission to speak. You saw this unwritten communication or unheard communication going on between them. Um, and so we went through a process. I got all the way to the award. I sent it to them and said, okay, so this is where your award is going to fall. And he just declined it. No, I don't like this person. I, I just don't like it. We went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And he wrote the statement about why these people were not responsive um, and also why the whole process had been defective and this change and everything he could to put an end to it. Um, and so basically, we started over. And as we were doing the planning and changing the scope and changing the requirements and all these things, I agreed to allow them to um, score the price proposal, which is not something that you really want to do. Because if you allow your end users to see the price, price proposals, then that can change their judgment, right? So like, if you know that, if we know that Target brand sheets are the, sheets are the best sheets, then we go in the store and we see that they cost $100, right? Then we know Walmart sheets are not as good quality, but maybe we can live with them. And then we go in Walmart and see that they only cost 30. Then our judgment might just go to Walmart so that we could save the $70. Does that make sense? And so that's why we don't have people looking at the price proposal. But he insisted on them being able to do that. And so in order just to get through the solicitation process and get them an award, I decided, okay, we can, we can evaluate the price proposal because they would never give me a, a good formula for the price proposal anyway. So we did, we got through it. I showed up for the evaluation panel meeting, gave them the technical proposal. They went and viewed it all. Um, 
well, they they received a technical proposal ahead of time. They evaluated it, and then I handed out the price proposals for them to evaluate in that meeting. But I had redacted it so that he could not see any um, supplier that bid. He still had no idea who did what as far as pricing. So he took one look at it and said to me, where are the names of the suppliers? And so I said, well, I didn't feel like that was necessary for you to see. Either you like the price proposals or you don't. And really, he got in a huff. And this is someone who would call my supervisor, my supervisor's supervisor, go all the way to the top. And, and my um, other colleagues had warned me, Stacy, don't go over there <laughs> aggravating that man. Let him do whatever it is he wants to do. But he could not argue with me about why it was important that he needed to see who was proposing because they're really you know it's just like the remember the blind coke and pepsi um Mm -hmm. challenges years ago y'all old enough to remember that yeah for sure yeah so that's really how i felt like it needed to go and we made the award but a year later this person got walked out of his job because of ethical concerns and so it really really drove home to me that you always have to be following your gut on these issues yeah, and making the decision based on, on merit and the facts you have on hand. Right. I think that's another great example kind of on the flip side of things. So like for the first one with the um, the HUD award, you know, that was something where you had to be flexible, you put an adjustment in place, and then how it all turned out was like the scores were equal and like everything was fine and like you were able to move forward with it. But in this case, you were flexible, you did show some of the pricing, you kept with your um, anonymity with which supplier was matching which pricing and it, it still didn't feel quite right and then you had to make a decision from there. So I think right. like, and the person ended up, maybe maybe it wouldn't have ended up ethically. So I think like you still were flexible, you still like had that option for them to move through. And then if you have to decide from there that you have to kind of, you know, shut some things down, then that's a decision that you have to make. Um, right. But I think having that like flexibility and then be, being willing to work with the person on the other side of things is so important just from a relationship standpoint. Well, and, and we do. And I, and I say that procurement is all about solutions. So we've always got to be looking for a way to make solutions, but it's also about relationships. And so we, we have to make sure we're always ethical because no one knows our ethical confines better than we do and i say you know often that we we can very well be what stands between our end users and jail or our end users and the front of a newspaper and and so i take that very seriously but there are some times when we have to rely on our relationships with our suppliers there'll be some times when something comes in at the last minute and we need them to help us do whatever they can to get it to us quickly anytime you've been involved in in um k-12 construction or opening of schools you know that every summer something's gonna happen and you need something right away and you have to beg people to get it there for you or you have to rely and trust in them that they're gonna adhere to the time schedule and there have been times when you know i've had to have suppliers deliver furniture on sunday and install them on sunday in order to get the school ready but then there's also responsibility and the need for us to build positive relationships with our stakeholders and our end users because sometimes things are going to fall between the cracks and you need to be able to go back and say look i messed this up i'm sorry i'm gonna do whatever i can to get it fixed and just be able to rely on the fact that they're not going to blow it out of proportion and they're going to be understanding and they trust that you always have their best interest at heart and so they accept that mistake and with grace and move on 
I'm sure um, you've seen that football is back this weekend. Colleges are coming together and mm-hmm. all that. What has the situation been like so far at South Carolina? And what, how involved has procurement been in sort of that back-to-school push? Schools had the summer to kind of make a decision where a student, not as many students were there. I'm sure there's still summer school and all that. But um, what has that been like coming back in the fall? And, and how involved were you in, in the procurement department in some of the decisions that got made? So our governor closed um, all institutions of learning, right? Public institutions of learning that was in K-12 and in higher ed on March the 15th. And of course, we still, at the university level, we still had to um, tend to those stakeholders. There were some kids, right, probably at every single university who can't go home because perhaps maybe the university is their home. And so we have a responsibility to them. Also, we had students who were international And so they can't just pick up and go down the street like, you know, students who are here. But we had a responsibility to them. So they remained on campus as well. In our department, we have been working since the governor declared an emergency, maybe a week or two weeks before he closed the universities to make sure that we had enough PPE, that we have enough cleaning supplies, hand sanitizers, dispensers, um, we've been working with our facilities maintenance teams and, and our FEMA people and our budget people to just to make sure that everything that they need shows up on campus. Housing is another group of people that we've been working very closely with, such that our charge was make sure that this campus has everything that it needs in order to ensure that it's safe for the students to return in the fall, which happened seamlessly. We're very well prepared. I think This is not me being shady, but I think we were probably more prepared than a lot of our counterparts because we never stopped working and we never stopped sourcing. And, you know, I'm not sure. Most people are aware that a lot of the markets went dry, right? We ordered some disinfectant cloths. We just, we ordered those in late March, early April. They were just delivered this week. Yeah, so we've been sourcing ever since because we wanted to make sure we got ahead of everybody else. And, you know, of course, we saw school districts were returning in fall after us. We wanted to make sure that we got ahead of school districts as well, because they were going to flood the market at that time. And it really left the University of South Carolina in a good place. So we were very prepared for our students. I mean, that seems like the right approach. As soon as the there started being the shortages, it's like, all right, let's do the best we can to get everything we can for tomorrow, but also... Let's start planning ahead for six months from now. And I think some of the places that you see who have maybe shut down or who didn't come back to school or they've done the, they've gone to 100% virtual or things like that. I think sometimes it's just out of an abundance of caution, but sometimes it's out of, oh, we're not actually as prepared as we thought we were going to be. And so now we're sort of in this bind where we have to do that because we just couldn't get things the things we needed in time so right yeah. and there's so much that goes into that decision you know i would never want to make it i think our well, president has done a <laughs> great job but my daughter also goes to a private institution and she decided that she would be staying home because she felt like the parameters that they were putting in place really it kind of detracted from the college experience and and her thing was to me, why would I move on campus to sit in a dorm all day, every day? 
because they were told, well, you can't be caught in open areas, right? They, they can't sit in the calf, which, you know, now they're saying they can have 50% capacity, but they, and they can't congregate in the library and they, they cannot be in each other's residence halls and places like that. But I mean, I, I totally get it. Those presidents and administration are, you know, really, really taking care of their, their stakeholders, mm-hmm. be it faculty, staff, or students. But the thing is, those universities who had to make the decision not to open back up, there's a lot of loss in that decision. Because if you think about it, if they're not opening back up, you know, can you ethically charge your students for housing, even though I've heard that some universities do, but can you charge them for housing that they're not living in? Mm -hmm. And if not, that's a lot of money. Even even tuition, there's an argument of like, hey, I was paying to be in a classroom with 12 people where I'm talking to that professor face to face. And now that class is being taught by a TA and that wasn't what I thought that was going to be or whatever that might be. So right. It's a super interesting right. thing because my, my alma mater went remote. They made the announcement a while ago. And I know some people who are younger and are there and it's the, there's some of them who would have happily stayed home like your daughter who are like, Hey, I don't want to risk it. I don't really need to be there. And then there's people who are like, I don't, I'm just going to take a year off. What I'm paying for is to be there. It's right. such an interesting dynamic of kids are making decisions. Parents are making decisions. The school is trying to do their best. My school was whatever, 5,000 students. I can only imagine what it's like when you're at a place like South Carolina or Michigan or where there's 25, 30, 40,000 students who you're responsible of making that decision for everybody. Right. I mean, that's the University of South Carolina all day long. And and to think about it, it touches everything, right? Because they ended up cutting, um, the SEC ended up cutting basketball season short, right? So what about that revenue? And what about the revenue to local businesses, restaurants, hotels? So can you make the decision not to have football? It would really, it would adversely impact the local economy. Is there anything else um, that you wanted to discuss today that's been top of mind or things that, that you've been thinking about for South Carolina or procurement in general? Um, you know, I just want to remind everybody the importance of what we do, because I think a lot of times we just don't realize it. Um, procurement professionals are usually on the grind just trying to make things happen for their entities and we don't think about the value that we bring or the impact that we have and so just as a reminder to remember that every single day and look for moments to celebrate it and to share it with your um, stakeholders whether they be um, your vendor community or your local community or you know your end user community because no one will know it no one people only know that when things are out of place right if we don't do our jobs and if the school bus is raggedy they will notice that but they will never notice that their kids are riding on a nice and shiny school bus with heating and air conditioning and all of that and they'll never know how much work went into making sure that that bus showed up for that Uh, for years i bought marching band uniforms and even i took that for granted like every year when i worked for the school district a different band got a new uniform and even i took that for granted until the first time i actually got to see one of the uniforms on a field at a band competition that my daughter was that and i thought well my goodness, that was something that I did. And and the sample uniform sat in my office for six months 
while I was waiting for the rest of them to be delivered, but I never got to see it in action. And so I just want to remind everybody to take a moment to appreciate all of the work that goes into making these things happen. And if you can get out and actually see it, to do that, take pictures, you know, keep brag books, all of that so that you can share it with the people around you. Because again, nobody knows what we're doing until we don't do it. I think, I think that's wonderful advice. And I've, not to use another football story or analogy, but I always describe <laughs> procurement as the offensive line of the government or education world where when they're doing when they're doing their job everyone's like all right cool like you don't necessarily notice that the job is being done amazingly but it's it's essential and it's it's the offense cannot run without a good offensive line and then when they make a mistake like they miss a block or the quarterback gets sacked then all of a sudden it's like oh my god can you believe he missed his tackle it's like well right he right. made the 75 blocks before that one. He just made <laughs> one mistake there. So maybe missed one. Maybe be uh maybe give him a pat on the back after the game for those 75 that he got. <laughs> so yeah, I, I really appreciate that story from you. Do you have anybody who you have been particularly impacted by or who has helped you along in your procurement career that you'd want to give a shout out today to, to Absolutely. So officially, my official mentor's name is Joe Tommy. And Joe has been he's like a fixture. I am a member of the South Carolina Association of Governmental Purchasing Officials. Joe's name is actually on the chart of that organization from back in 1978, 1978 or 1982. So that's, he's been around just that long. He is also a master instructor for NIGP and he started out in K-12 and moved um, from Columbia to um, what we have is Pickens County in South Carolina, and he ended up at Cobb County in um, Atlanta, and Joe actually was a procurement person that did SunTrust Park oh, down wow. there. Yeah. yeah, and so his thing has always been to give back, and he became my official mentor through our chapter, and from that time, all these years, he, I think he thought that it was going to be like a year and then, you know, I'll let Stacy go. But to this day, I still, if I need help with something, I'll call him. Um, I don't know if you actually got to see my work, my session on social responsibility at this year's NIGP conference, but that was a result of me calling Joe and saying, hey, um, I've been asked to develop a course for NIGP on social responsibility. Can you help me out with that? And of course, Joe never says no to me. And then also Mary Sims, who was on that team, has been an unofficial mentor. Um, I say everything that I've wanted to do in procurement, she's already done. But then when I show up in the room, she's like, well, y'all, everybody is here. Stacy is here. And I just want to introduce her to y'all because she's doing all of these things. And I'm, you know, I'm just always like, Mary, what are you talking about? Everything that I do, <laughs> you, you did 15 years ago. But both of them have been quite encouraging to me and have been fixtures not only in public procurement, but in my professional life well that's awesome thank you thank you for sharing those those personal stories i really appreciate it um thank you it's for been inviting great. me yeah thank you thanks for listening to decisions that matter this podcast is brought to you by procurated the leading supplier evaluation tool for procurement professionals across the u.s don't forget to subscribe on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you prefer to listen see you again next time